You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. But Dr. Thurman, and I know we talk about his mysticism, everybody thought he's a mystic and so on. He was not a mystic, though, who just spent all this time trying to say, I'm with God and blah, 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 blah. When you read his Jesus and the Disinherited, when you read the luminous darkness, he is talking about how does this religion of Jesus or this ethic of love apply to current situations? And if we took it seriously, we would not have the problems that we have today. And that's not only locally, nationally, but internationally. And so um, how do we move, it's my question, how do we move to be more embracing of the differences This podcast explores the mystery of relatedness as an organizing principle of the universe and of our lives. We're trying to catch a glimpse of connections beyond color, continent, country, or kinship. And we're going to do this through science, mysticism, spirituality, and the creative arts. I'm Donnie Bryant. I'm Barbara Holmes. And this is The Cosmic We. Today we have as our special guest, Dr. Dorsey Odell Blake. Dr. Blake has served as presiding minister of the Church for the Fellowship of All Nations in San Francisco since 1994. Fellowship Church was co-founded in 1944 as the nation's first internationally interracial interfaith congregation by Drs. Howard Thurman and Alfred Fisk. Dr. Blake also serves as faculty associate at Pacific School of Religion as well as a faculty member of the Proctor Institute Children's Defense Fund. Additionally, he is a member of the Advisory Board of Ethics and Tech and the Board of Directors of the Gus Newport Project. Dr. Dorsey Blake, welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much. I feel honored to be invited. Um, I have certainly been very impressed with Dr. Holmes' work for some years and very happy to meet you also. So glad to have you with us. Dr. Dorsey, we, uh, it, it is a privilege to have you here. Some of our guests have been exposed to uh, the church that you currently pastor. And, uh, but I, I really want to start this out before we get into this uh, very influential and historical uh, institution that you are leading currently. Could you give our audience a little bit about your background from your perspective, your, your origin story? Um, kind of how you got to this point, how you were guided to this place. Could you give us a little bit more about that that journey? Yes, and I will ask you to stop me if I go on <laughs> too long, because it is a quite an interesting journey, and I don't know how much you want to get into my action movement to Fellowship Church, but I was born in Kansas City, Missouri. My family moved to Liberty, Missouri, which is about 15 miles from Kansas City, when I was about eight months old to take his first pastorate at First Baptist Church, Mount Zion District, Liberty, Missouri. One of the claims to fame of Liberty was that Jesse and Frank James spent time in the Clay County Jail, which was located ah. <laughs> in Liberty, and supposedly buried some treasure there, but nobody ever found it in the Liberty. So I was fourth out of nine children. Experiences that maybe just shaped me much later um, happened when I was young, my father there was a minister, 
at the Baptist Church um, in Liberty and applied to William Jewell College to finish his academic works, which was stopped by World War II and the draft. He was refused because of race. He reminded me that, he told me that when the president actually made a visit to the house and basically told him that, um, well, you've got all these children, he had five at the time, and you cannot afford to, to go to our college, it's too expensive and blah, blah, blah. And he said, well, Uncle Sam's paying for it. You know, I served in the army and you know, so I have the GI Bill, whatever. So then he just came out and told him he just could not attend because of, you know, they didn't allow a black people or Negroes were used at that time. So I think that was part of my formation in terms of exclusion, inclusion. He went on, however, to go to Rockhurst, which was a Jesuit school in Kansas City. Uh, the president at Rockhurst College heard about this and made some news and contacted my father to see if he would be interested in attending Rockhurst. And so uh, he did and uh, was the first black to attend Rutgers College in Kansas City, Missouri, and to graduate. And then the, later on, the first black person to attend Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City and to graduate. So that's part of my history. Part of my history also is the fact that he worked with people. He was there as a counselor for people in a very segregated community. Liberty was very segregated then. And um, I guess that inspired me to understand that Something had to be done to deal with the racism, the racial divide in our country. At that time, of course, I did not know how, and I was not a person to think in terms of movement realities, but I was a person who always objected to segregation. And I never, and this is by far, I never bought into the fact that black people were inferior, never. Because I guess of my father being very prominent in our black community, and when things were desegregated, baseball, little baseball first, and then the schools, I excelled. And a lot of black kids excelled. So there is nothing in my experience to say that you are inferior, nothing. Um, so that was really, I think, quite a gift to me growing up that I received from my father and my mother, who was always absolutely so supportive. I attended Brown University as an undergraduate, majoring in pre-med which I spent too much time in two years before I dropped out. There were signals before that. You <laughs> <laughs> didn't, like <laughs> didn't like the sight of blood or something. Exactly. How did you know? I tried I, the same thing. Oh, I can, and I kept saying, well, I'm sure I'll grow out of this. You know, I'm sure I'll grow out of this, but no, I could not stand. And in terms of dissecting, I, oh, no, I couldn't do this. I couldn't, I couldn't either. <laughs> so anyways, I ended up majoring in sociology. There were a lot of things that happened at Brown's campus, which were amazing in terms of the Black speakers. I saw and heard many of the top Black speakers, James Farmer, Martin Luther King, uh, Adam Clayton Powell. Uh, Malcolm X was assassinated. He was scheduled to come March the 5th, 1965. And he was assassinated in April, I mean, February 21st. And I looked forward to meeting Malcolm. But one of the experiences that really uh, was transforming in a way was meeting Dr. King, who came to campus on, in 1967, uh, not too long I think about a week and a half or whatever after he gave his great speech at Riverside Church, you know, beyond Vietnam, a time to break silence. And I was 
this is my junior year in college and I was ushering. And uh, I looked at my watch. I said, well, Dr. King is late. I mean, the program's, you know, and he's blah, 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 and so on. And I was going, yeah. And uh, all of a sudden, I felt from the back, this, this presence, this, 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 this energy just enveloped me. And I looked around, and it was Dr. King. I mean, when he got up to speak at sales hall, I said it was like Isaiah um, being in the temple and um, the, the temple being filled with this, this awesome presence. Um, he felt like, it seemed like he was one of the prophets from the uh, Hebrew scriptures. Um, there was a radiance about him. Um, he, he filled the temple. And um, when it was over, he looked like he was 10 feet tall. I mean, he really was just, it was just this awesome presence. And in the reception line, after the service, <laughs> I went over to him, I realized, I'm going, he's a little dude. <laughs> he's shorter, he's shorter than I am. You know, so I, oh. But yeah, when he was speaking, it was right. like, right. and we had a wonderful conversation, actually. We had some time to talk. And uh, he was the one who convinced me to file for a conscientious objection to the Vietnam War, which is something I'd been thinking about. Uh, but his presentation, he, he urged people to do that. And I told him that I'd been thinking along those lines and uh, he had convinced me to apply. Um, he actually offered, he invited me to send. I said, well, you know, I'm a Baptist. I don't know what the Baptists believe, the National Baptists, the Black Baptists. I don't know what they believe about war or whatever. And I need something to support my argument. And he said, well, send your draft to me if you like, and I'd be happy to look at it. And um, I never did. You know how students, you know how students are? Yeah. Last oh, yeah. minute, I got to get this thing <laughs> yeah. into selective service board. I, you know, Martin Luther King said, look, but I got to, you know, the night before, whatever. And so I did not get him to, to look at it, which is one of my real regrets. But, but what a generous offer. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. I couldn't believe it. My regret was I did not hop in his car and go with him to Boston. That's where he was headed. Um it was just enormous presence, um, which I, I still can't describe. I'm still um, bothered by it. So when his assassin, but the other thing that happened was my heart made a promise to him, I think, that whatever I did with my own life had to be consistent with what he was doing, would try to help in some kind of way. And um, that has followed me all of my life. Um, because there's still times when I think about his life. And every year in my class, one of my classes at Pacific School of Religion, I show the film um, At the River I Stand, which is the film about his going to Memphis, working with the sanitation workers. And that's where he was assassinated. And I think about the night before when he said, I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory the coming, and every time I hear that, the chills just return. And I go, this is a person, if we don't understand this, this is a person who embodied all that Jesus embodied, as far as I'm concerned. It was also giving of his life into the all-pervading presence, as Simon calls it. So Dr. King was an extraordinary influence on me. My senior year, I wasn't sure what I was going to do when I graduated. And a lot of my friends at Brown would say, uh, you're going into ministry, aren't you? Aren't you going to be a minister? 
I'm going to listen. I said, my father is a minister. Ministers don't make any money. <laughs> and I Precisely. am tired of being poor. <laughs> so I said, no. <laughs> but they all kept saying, but you act like a minister. You blah, 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 this, all this kind of thing. So finally what happened was I was in the chaplain's office and we had a fine chaplain, Charles Baldwin, just amazing. And a person at times worked with him, Dr. Julia Scott. But Baldwin, so I was in his office as I often went to his office after one of his sermons, the next day after his sermon. And um, I found this, this uh, propaganda sheet from Pacific School of Religion. I never heard of Pacific School of Religion, didn't know where it was, but it was like, are you dissatisfied with the world? Are you discontent with what is happening? Yes. There are about eight questions. Yes, yes, yes. It said, aha, you're part of the new breed. Some of the new breed are going to Peace Corps, which I looked at. Some at the Vista, which I looked at. And some are coming to Theological Seminary. And it was just so amazing. I said, okay, I've got to apply to this place. I looked at other places, so I applied. And I was arrogant enough to call about a week later and say, am I in or not? And <laughs> <laughs> he said, oh, no, you're in. So <laughs> that kind of thing. So and that's how I got to PSR. The reason I'm saying that it was through PSR as a student there that I was able to first meet Dr. Howard Thurman. There was a, a program or a department, actually, a center at the uh, Graduate Theological Union of which PSR was a member. There were nine seminaries, which were part of the GTU, the Graduate Theological Union Consortium. And there was a Center for Urban Black Studies that developed in, on Martin Luther King's birthday, um, 1969. And they taught courses there. And students from all the seminaries could take courses and get credit for it. So I had taken a lot of the courses. Uh, the director of the program was Dr. Williams, uh, Dr. Zaya Williams, who has studied with Dr. Thurman at Boston University. He was there a year with, with King, remember the King, so he knew Dr. King and uh, other people who were there, um, some outstanding leaders. But anyways, he uh, at one point said, well, after I'd taken all these courses, he said, why don't you do an independent studies on Dr. Howard Thurman? I said, Dr. Who? <laughs> well. <laughs> he, said, he said, you don't know who Dr. Howard Thurman is? I said, no, of course I don't know who Dr. Howard Thurman is. I've never heard of him. And he told me a little bit about Dr. Howard Thurman. And um, from his secretary, Ms. Rivas, I received contact information and called and um, made an appointment for that Saturday morning to see Dr. Thurman. So I got there. And um, it, the instructions were to ring all three bells. It's okay. I found out later it's because you know, he had to study on one level in office, um, the tapes on another level, and then he and Mrs. Thurman lived on another level. So within a few minutes, though, I was, somebody came to the door. This elderly black man came to the door and greeted me and good morning. We exchanged good mornings. And then I told him who I was. And I had an appointment to get some books from Dr. Th about Dr. Thurman, from Dr. Thurman. And he goes, yes. And so I walked right past him. And again, this thing, this thing started. So I go, I turn and said, are you Dr. <laughs> Thurman? <laughs> wow. And he said, yes. So we had a good conversation. First of all, he told me that the book to begin with was uh, The Growing Edge because that would give me some understanding of how he developed his worship service with the meditation, the prayer message, and so on. 
He then informed me that he was preaching the next day at the Church for the Fellowship of All Peoples. So I said, oh my God, I have to go. So I, here, came to the church. This is where I am right now. And um, sat on the very back pew. It was, the place was just full. And throughout his sermon, I guess I, I had my head in my hands like, it was just unbelievable. Now, if you ask me today, what did he preach about? I don't know. It was not what he was saying. It was a presence that he brought. And um, after the service, I went to him and said, um, you know, how marvelous the sermon was. And he was saying, well, well, yes. Uh, I was wondering when you were going to come up for air. <laughs> so, 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 so. so that was Dr. Thurman. He was aware all the time of who was in the presence. One of my predecessors at the church as a pastor said that I um, told similar stories. He said the first time he heard Dr. Thurman was at a church in Berkeley and he was so impressed and wanted to say something to Dr. Thurman. But by the time he got to Dr. Thurman, there were all these people around him and he had to leave. So he didn't get a chance to see Dr. Thurman. Then there was another occasion and uh, he heard Dr. Thurman speak and said, this time, I don't care how long it takes, I'm going to go and say something to Dr. Thurman. So he went to Dr. Thurman and started to say, well, how much I appreciate it. And Dr. Thurman said to him, yes, I remember you. You were at the presentation at the Baptist in, in Berkeley and you were sitting over and, and he was just shocked. Amazing. It was amazing because, to, to make this very clear, because this person was white and most of the congregation was white, you know, so it's not like you had one black person out of the entire congregation that he could recognize. No, it wasn't that at all. So he had that amazing facility of remembering, um, of being so aware of everybody, um, their presence and what they brought to the encounter. So um, that was Dr. Thurman. I was able to do my independent studies which led then to a course taught at the Center for Urban Black Studies on Dr. Howard Thurman. And I was trying to find the article in Jet Magazine that said that, at least I was told that, that was the first course ever taught, as far as they knew, on a Black personality at a college or seminary. Is there life after doom? Explore the complexity of hope and grief at our upcoming event, Courage and Resilience, an online gathering with Brian McLaren. Unpack themes from Brian McLaren's new book, Life After Doom. Discover how to find courage, even when everything may feel hopeless. Join us live on May 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. All those who register will have access to the recorded replay for one year. Register at cac.org courage. aura that you talk about when Dr. Thurman was preaching or speaking remains at the Church of the Fellowship of All People. Because I was there and it, it's been a while. I think back in 2002. And of course, Dr. Thurman had long since passed. 
He wasn't there, but whoever was giving the meditation, I don't believe you were there that Sunday. The same thing happened to me. I came there as a person writing a book, working on Joy Unspeakable, wanted to go down to where, you know, Howard Thurman's church was. My mom was with me. And all of a sudden, I'm sitting there just, I'm just observing. I'm not going to worship. I'm going to observe. And all of a sudden, I am engulfed. I am deeply immersed. I'm going places I don't necessarily want to go. The meditation was so, it felt like a baptism. There was something about the space, the diversity, the people. I tried to write about it in the book, but I couldn't even get close to what the experience was like. But I read something where you did do a good job, a beautiful job of describing your experience at the church. I don't know who was there that Sunday, but Dr. Catherine Benton, who is our co-minister, is just marvelous with the meditations. I mean, she is something, but that is still a part of our service, uh, meditation. And we try to reserve a few moments before church, you know, quiet, and then part of our service is a period of meditation. It varies because we also ask different people to do the meditations, so they can volunteer to do meditations. And sometimes it's sharing their journey sharing something that they have written or whatever. But we always try to surround it with some quiet time at the very beginning and some quiet time at the end. Um, And that is based on so much that Thurman had to teach us. What surprises me is that since it was such a revolutionary idea to put together multi-ethnic, multi-religious folk to worship together, you would think that that would have expanded beyond Fellowship Church. Um, And yet it hasn't. I mean, given the state of the world, what is the future for multi-ethnic, multi-religious congregations, do you think? There are a few around. um, But my hope is in some of the interfaith community organizing groups, because a lot of them are bringing people together from various faith traditions and dealing with some very serious issues like immigration, Um, like the impoverished communities in our nation. Um, That doesn't mean just all the interfaith groups, because I think many of them can be a bit removed from the everyday lives of people. And there's a lot of exchange of texts, and that's nice, and that's informative, it's educational, it's helpful. However, there must be a movement beyond just the exchange of texts to really get involved in some of the things that are happening in this world. There was a professor who said a long time ago, if you want to know the history of the world, or the history of war, uh, look at the history of religion and how much religions have been involved in wars of the world. And I have not found that to be as, as serious a priority as it needs to be in some of the interfaith churches. And I agree with you on the interfaith churches, inter cultural churches, as they call them. I've been to some, and it's nice to participate. Uh, But Dr. Thurman, a lot of people, and I know we talk about his mysticism. Everybody talks he's a mystic and so on. He was not a mystic, though, who just spent all his time trying to say, I'm with God and blah, 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 blah. When you read his Jesus and the disinherited, when you read the luminous darkness, 
He is talking about how does this religion of Jesus or this ethic of love apply to current situations? Yes. And if we took it seriously, we would not have the problems that we have today. And that's not only locally, nationally, but internationally. I think if we had taken some of these understanding his understanding seriously, we may not have had this war, Russia against Ukraine, or the other wars that we tend to forget, uh, Iraq, because they were basically Muslim people there, but we didn't say much about that. We didn't have an international coalition saying, oh, this is wrong, you know, that kind of thing. And so um, how do we move, it's my question, how do we move to be more embracing of the differences? And I think a lot of times we, and I think it's important to understand the commonality, the common, but I think sometimes we move too quickly into common ground or a reconciliation without looking at justice pieces, uh, compassion pieces, those kinds of things. So I would agree with you. But at the same time, one of the things that Mrs. Thurman said to me was very beautiful. Uh, she was just an absolutely wonderful person. And she said, I feel sorry for you ministers today because you have so much that you have to respond to that Howard, as you call him, did not. And what she meant by that was that you're always being pulled because now you do have this interfaith thing, this inter and you're always being asked to participate in this, participate in that, and, and participate in that. What I think she was really trying to say, you don't really have the time to devote to replenishing your spirit, which is absolutely necessary if you're going to be effective in the work that you are called to do. And I agree with her on that very much so. We are so busy um, that, and I hear you, Dr. Holmes, I think you're right on target, that there have been a lot, there have been not a lot, but some interfaith, intercultural churches. And the question is, how deep are they and what kind of impact have they had on the larger life? Dr. Blake, I actually uh, am part of a interfaith and interracial uh, faith community in Michigan, small community. Um, was founded in 2016. I am uh, the senior pastor of that community. And I've been really inspired by the intentionality um, behind the formation of the Church for the Fellowship of All Peoples in San Francisco. One of the questions that I, I wrestle with is, is leadership, particularly leading in this particular age, leading through the chaotic moments and I, I love how you correlated the manifestation of love, not just the, the inner transformation and the inner spiritual journey of the individual, but you made it relevant to how that plays out, how that love looks in the world, how that manifests. But how does, what is the role of leadership? You mentioned you know, Dr. Thurman and, and, and Dr. Fisk and the co-leadership there, and you talk about your co-leader, your co-pastor within your organization today. Are there some wisdom insights that you that we can glean from the intentionality of how leadership works together to bring forth this interracial, interfaith community that, that actually does love in the world? One of the reasons I'm at Fellowship Church was because of Mrs. Thurman. And uh, Mrs. Thurman saw in me something that she thought was important that I would bring. And I think part of it was she was very clear that I was also an activist and that that was needed at the church at that time. 
My co-minister, Dr. Benton, and I, first of all, she was a student at the University of Creation Spirituality when I was there as director of the program. So we had this, this relationship that we knew. Uh, so I knew of her deep spirituality. I was on her dissertation committee and so on. And her understanding, too, of the relationship between the communion or with God and the realities of life. Um, so we are attuned to that. I think the other thing we have tried to do is to be open to other people who come, uh, who have also ideas. I think if you read Dr. Thurman's The Search for Common Ground at the very end, that last paragraph is just awesome. When he basically says, we can't survive, we can't go forward unless we are open to people coming from all places who refresh us. Without that, we, you know, you're going to become very insulated or isolated and you can't have a future if that is where you're where you are so i think part of the leadership has to be at one of openness and to find that you learn you know there has to be a dynamic relationship between leadership and those in the congregation uh, so it's a constant calling forth each other so they keep calling us into leadership as we call them into community and I think the basis of that is this idea of love. Everybody at that church that I know of is really committed to justice issues, peace issues. And so what the church does, and this is a beautiful thing, the church does. The church is a place, in fact, last Sunday, we had an ordination um, not too long ago. It was our, we had several, and this was of another, a transgender person. The reason I'm saying transgender was this one person said, oh, I think this might be the only church that's had two trans, we've actually ordained three, <laughs> this kind of thing. And one of the things that our board chair said, I had not put in these terms, I put in other terms, this church is sort of like a filling station. <laughs> you know, He said, when you're out there running in the world and doing all these kinds of things, we're here, you stop by here. And we try to replenish you in order for you to keep running, to do what you've got to do in the larger world. And that was the emphasis of Dr. Thurman, that the church should be a place for spiritual renewal, for growth, for growing deeper in one's own spirituality and the connection between that and what you do in the larger world. That is truly a model for, for all churches. Um, wow, thank you. Have a, a sermon series expressing a sense of awe. Yes. How do we maintain that sense of wonder in our current world? I think one of the things is to, what I said last Sunday in my sermon, for example, was the fact that when you read Dr. Thurman's works and he talks as a child how he was so connected to, to nature, the stars, and how he had this oak tree in his backyard that he could lean against and pour out all of the that happened in the day. And knowing that, my point is knowing that not only did the oak tree have his back, but the oak tree actually spoke to him in cosmic language, tree language, uh, this kind of thing. Um, but we were all born into a world of awe. We all have had a sense of awe. When we were children, that's the thing that guided our emotions, our lives. We were exploring. We would do things. The parents said, no, 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 don't do that. You know, you pull this. No, 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 no. You can't come. You come back in here. Don't say after dark. While we were excited about the dark. What's in the dark? You know, this, this kind of thing. So we were born with that. All of us 
when we were kids, looked up at the stars and go, wow, or the moon, wow, those kinds of things. So we were born with that. This idea of exploring, going beyond boundaries, that's part of the mystery of going beyond, going beyond what is norm or the acceptable. And we had to be brought back and socialized. That is the problem. And we made our socialization a reality rather than our awe. So one of the things that we have to do is to recreate that system. And it's there. We try to do that. If you look at our, in fact, our uh, bulletin, that's what we talk about. We don't have a call to what we have. What we start with is expressing a sense of awe. That's where we. That's what's in our bulletin. Not called to work. Expressing a sense of awe. And part of that expression of awe has not only to do with how marvelous each day is, but the fact that the awe that I am here with the two of you, two kin folks, K-I-N folks. I don't know how we're related by blood, but we are related by the essence of God that is in us, by the all-pervading presence of Thurman talks about, we are kin folks. And I have a chance today to be with two of my kin folk, one I haven't seen in a long, long, long time, or heard in a long, long, long time, and a new kin person I did not even know about. You know, this, this kind of thing. Isn't that amazing? And the amazing, the experiences we just talked about that we share. Reverend Brent, you're talking about your church, your new church. Wonderful. The question of how do you lead? Dr. Holmes, all the books you've written, your leadership at Memphis Theological, all this kind of stuff, that's all. How do we as human beings do these kinds of things? How do we participate in these kinds of things? And how do we come together to support, renew each other? That's all. Life is a mystery. And one of the problems with our churches has been that they refuse to see life as a mystery. We codify it. You have to believe this creed. You have to believe this dogma. No, you don't. That is not what life is about. That's not what God is about. Jesus didn't leave all these creeds and dogmas that, that you got to follow. So the awe is really, I think, being present to life and engaging life. You have your program, the cosmic we. I love that term because that's what it's about. Not just the cosmic I, but the cosmic we. And how do we define the we? We can define the we in terms of trees, the rivers, the rocks, those kinds of things, but also the we in terms of who we are. So we're not, again, this kind of um, segmentation, individualism, which this nation promotes so much. No. I even said, you know, the whole question in this nation, when we talk about coming up, the Declaration of Independence, it's such an awful document in, in terms of those, those, those the names, not in terms of, because we're, it should be, we should talk about a declaration of interdependence, not only among us, but with the whole web of life. If we did, like in some of the traditional African context, we would not have these ecological problems that we're having. If we could treat the ecosystem the way it needs to be treated, we would not have to deal with, what it, with the fact that the world might not be with us much longer. There's a friend of mine who said, instead of even saying the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, maybe we should say the earth is the Lord. And the quote was, how will we think differently? How will we treat the world, nature, differently if we said the earth is the Lord? Seeing the sacredness in creation. Yes. The sacredness of creation and the sacredness of our own lives. Matthew Fox does a beautiful job in terms of his book, um, Original Blessing, where he says, and he 
takes on this thing about be- being born in original sin. Because we were not born in original sin. We were born originally blessed. We were blessed. Original blessing. We are all expressions of God, the divine presence. We are trying to see what that presence looks like, feels like, what that presence does now. And God depends on us to do that. We're the agents of this all-pervading presence. And that cannot be coming from somebody who's just, you know, a friend of mine used to talk, not, well, he only said it was my present. We're all just filthy rags. I'm going, no, we are not <laughs> filthy rags. No. <laughs> you know, no, where we get that kind of stuff? Throw it out. We have to throw a lot of stuff out that we've been taught, including the great sacred text, the Bible. There's a lot of stuff in there that is just not relevant and actually is oppressive. And if we buy into it, we're going to buy into a lot of oppression against a whole lot of people. I love that juxtaposition uh, between original blessing and original sin, which was handed to us in, by Augustine. Yes. Uh, but Doc, uh, Father Richard Wuerr, he, he has another spin on that. He calls it original goodness. Yes. Right? yes. The original goodness <laughs> of creation. Right. Yes. Yes. I'm on the mailing list. <laughs> Center for action and contemplation. <laughs> so, and that's helpful. Hearing you speak, I hear the ver- reverberations of your mentor Thurman. Without a doubt, I know why Sue Bailey Thurman chose you. I know why she handed those robes of his to you, and I understand why the mantle was placed on your shoulders. When I returned to the Bay Area, I had gone away a couple of years. Went to teach at the University of Alabama for five years. I was the first black full-time male at the University of Alabama teaching it uh, in Tuscaloosa. Then I came back for three years to work on a PhD, which I didn't finish at the time. Then I went to Athens, Ohio as campus minister, then back in six years. Anyway, Mrs. when I came back, I was director of the Center for Urban Black Studies. And Mrs. Thurman called uh, the Center for Dr. Williams. And I answered the phone. I said, Mrs. Thurman, well, Dr. Williams is no longer director. He's chair of the board. I am director of the center. So she was saying, she had called to invite me to a, a convocation of Howard Thurman scholars at Fellowship Church, to invite him. him. So I told her again, he was not here. And she said, you know, so then she invited me. And she ended with saying, well, you're a Howard Thurman scholar. And I was blown away because I never saw myself in terms of a Harvard Thurman scholar. I just really, so two years, about two years later, she called and said that the church was really having some serious issues financially. And she had wanted, the board had wanted me to come by and consult with them in terms of how to go forward with so little money. I never got the call from the chair of the board, never. And the Sunday, they could not afford the minister, the Sunday after, right after the minister left, because they cannot afford to pay him, Mrs. Thurman called me. And Mrs. Thurman developed something that she knew she could always get me to say yes. She called and said, um, Sir Dorsey, that's what she called me, which wanted something. Would it be possible for you to come to Fellowship Church and uh, preach for us this Sunday? Uh, you know, just to give us a sense of continuity. And I said, yes, Mrs. Thurman, I could do that. So after this sermon, she came to me again and said, um, Sir Dorsey, 
Could you come again next week to preach for us? You know, just to sort of give us a sense of continuity. I said, yes, Mrs. Sermon. That's Sandy, she said. Uh, Sir Dorsey, I was, I was wondering, would it be possible for you to stay with us and, until the end of the year, through December? You know, just to give us a sense. That's Mrs. Sermon. You know, I'm director of the Center for Black Studies. I'm really active in the community. I've just gotten a doctor of ministry program. Yes, Mrs. Sermon. <laughs> you know, and then, <laughs> then at a meeting at her house, a board meeting in February, we were sitting together by each other on the couch, and this was not on the agenda. And all of a sudden, she just turned to me and said, Sir Dorsey, don't you think it's time for you to become minister at Fellowship Church? <laughs> so, so, so that's sort of how it happened. And then it took me some time to actually um, have our, my installation service. The reason I'm saying that is Mrs. Thurman was really the person. Of course, the, the board was very happy and all this stuff. But when we decided to have the ordination, that's when she told me at one point later on that she was going to present Dr. Thurman's robe to me. And I was, I was really going to, it didn't really strike me because there were so many things going on. Uh, but what happened was when she, at the very end of the service, when she um, came up with her little suitcase and the chair of the board, she took it out. The last words she said before she put it on me, the last words were, and this robe hasn't been worn since Howard's death. So she they put it on me, and I think his essence was still there. It felt like it was actually clinging, clinging to me. And I could not speak. I'm verbal, as you can tell, you know, but I could not speak. So I walked away from the podium and said, okay, take three deep breaths and go back. So I did, I took my three deep breaths. And so I went back and I tried again. And, and nothing would come out. Um, there was a fan, Allen Temple Baptist Church's um, male chorus was providing music for us that Sunday. There's Reverend Deacon Michael Johnson, who was a friend from Allen Temple, shouted out while I was in this thing, let the Lord use you, Reverend, let the Lord use you. And then all of a sudden the tears and, and what happened was, it was so beautiful. My former secretary, my closest friend still, Lolita Rivas and one of the um, Reverend Lawrence Lakey was a CME minister uh, and we were in school together. He was at the Presbyterian school and I was at PSR. I guess they made eye contact across the aisles. The next thing I knew, they were coming up the aisle together and one stood on one side and one on the other and just sort of held me. And that really ended the service. Um, and um, One of my students who came up later to hug, he said, do you know your there was electricity in your body. So when I hugged you, it was just, and others said that too, and it was. Uh, but it was the, the experience that I, I just don't know. I, I, I don't know what happened, but I was just very grateful for that. And still feeling it in many ways that I don't know if I can live up to this, you know. Um, to receive his robe, I. It's like I'm really not worthy of this at all. Just not worthy. But I accept it because it does come from Mrs. Thurman. And for some reason, she has decided 
to do this. So Mrs. Thurman has a very special, special role in my life. And I'm hoping that someday there'll be more people who talk about her and her great contributions to the world because they too were enormous. Oh, Dr. Dorsey, thank you so much for inviting us into a very, very, very special glimpse of your life, the life of Howard Thurman, the life of Sue Bailey Thurman, and the power, the power of love. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dr. Dorsey. Thank you both so much. What an honor this has been and a great pleasure. Thank you. Today, I want to consider as a reflection from our conversation with Dr. Dorsey, a couple of thoughts. One of the things that I really want us to take away from this conversation was this idea of our spirituality, not just from the understanding of our spiritual maturity and our inner spiritual development and our vertical relationship with God, but particularly as he gives us insight to how we show up in the world, how our view of the Christian ethic of love, how it impacts the world around us and how we impact the world around us. So today I want to encourage us to consider uh, a view of our spiritual growth, our spiritual maturity in a way of not just what it does for us, but how we show up in the communities that we live in. How does this ethic of love, how does this perception and this view of love, how does it impact the world that we live in? Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.